The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. Kiwi Bank is committed to supporting New Zealanders' understanding of the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. This week I want to talk about global capitalism and how it seems to be wrecking itself from the inside out. That there's this doom loop in operation, where as the economy gets bigger, those people who own the assets at the top of the pile, if you like, get more and more of the output from that economy, and those at the bottom of the pile get poorer and poorer. And as they get poorer and poorer, they tend not to produce so much. And so the pile doesn't grow so quickly. And eventually, as you go round and around, the machine grinds to a halt. That doom loop starts to fold in on itself. And that's a basic problem with capitalism. We have heard about this over the last five or six years with the likes of Thomas Piketty talking about how as economies grow, they tend to concentrate wealth at the top to the point where it becomes so unbalanced that it falls over. And his argument is that we need to stop the doom loop, to change the internals of the machine, to stop widening inequality. And it's increasingly relevant now as we come out of COVID, and we have something that many people are calling now the K-shaped recovery, where some people, particularly those with assets, have seen the value of those assets rise very quickly. In New Zealand, of course, that means higher house prices, but also Many people in business and in banking have seen their businesses do quite well, in part because of support from the government. $16 trillion, actually, over the last year or so right around the world. And now some people are looking at how to change the internals of the machine to turn that doom loop into more like a flywheel so it runs itself and continues to grow. And this is all about how you change that relationship between inequality on the one hand and productivity on the other. We've had this theory 30, 40 years ago that as the tide of an economy rose, everyone benefited. That when the tide came in, everyone got richer. We worked out, of course, that the way we've been running capitalism for 30 to 40 years means that instead we're seeing those at the top of the pile get quite a bit richer, and we've seen that since the global financial crisis and since COVID, where in New Zealand at least, people who own assets here, about $1.2 trillion before COVID, are now sitting on assets worth $1.6 trillion, so about $400 billion better off. Also, the beneficiary of $50 billion or so of government money printing and bond buying, which has reduced interest rates. Also, $16.6 billion worth of uh, wage subsidies from the government and various other um, supports and guarantees, which has meant that as we come out of the COVID crisis, we are seeing some people much better off and many people who are on precarious incomes, maybe on a benefit, 
their incomes haven't risen nearly as much, and also they haven't benefited from this rise in the value of assets. So this week, some really big news out of America, where Janet Yellen, the new U.S. Treasury Secretary, essentially Joe Biden's right-hand woman controlling the world's largest economy, announced that, and this is a big one, she wanted the global economy to have a minimum corporate tax rate. You may have heard of these bigger-thy-neighbour contests to try and get companies to come to certain countries. Ireland is the poster child for this, where they lowered their corporate tax rate to almost 10% to get the likes of Apple and Microsoft and a whole bunch of pharmaceutical companies to set up in Ireland. And it's been great for Ireland, but what it did was effectively unleash a whole bunch of multinationals to pick off countries and play them off against each other so that their basic tax rate was much lower. Well, Janet Yellen is saying now we must have a minimum corporate tax rate of 21%. And that is more likely to force through changes in the way the OECD, the global economic apparatus, tries to ensure that multinationals pay the right level of tax. So it's a big change. But essentially it's saying that America the world's biggest capitalists, the ones that drive the agenda, want to see a change in this internal structure of global capitalism to try and get away from that doom loop and try to create more of a flywheel where as the economy grows, everyone benefits. And the one way to do that is to increase taxes for corporates, particularly multinational corporates. So this week, we're going to look at those two things inequality and productivity. Firstly, we're going to talk to Ganesh Nana, who's the new Productivity Commission chair, whose job it is to try and understand why New Zealand's productivity rate is so poor. He talks about how rising inequality is one of the factors there and how changing the way that we look at how we produce for the economy and for our society is one way to understand that problem and start to deal with it. And then we talked to Craig Rennie, who's the new chief economist for the Council of Trade Unions. He is from overseas, so knows this international debate, and has worked right at the highest levels in New Zealand's government with the current finance minister, Grant Robertson, and is also really aware of these big debates happening internationally, which in many ways New Zealand is not so aware of. So I'm going to try and bring this into the debate. How are we going to fix global capitalism so it doesn't wreck itself? So welcome to Ganesh Nana. I wanted to find out how an improvement in productivity actually improves the lives of people who maybe at the moment have three or four jobs, they're in the gig economy. How does a productivity improvement actually improve their lives? Well, I, I think I should preface this about any productivity change, and, and this may sound a little bit of a cliche, but it is a long haul, and I think mean, we've got to get past this conversation that we expect productivity to, to change overnight and deliver wonderful things to people tomorrow. It is a long haul. It's been a challenge that's been with the New Zealand economy probably since the year dot, and it's going to be an ongoing challenge. It's just a continual advancement and improvement. What it means for New Zealanders, whether they've got a job or not, it, in my opinion, it's all about the opportunities that, that they have in the future. If we continue down the road of ignoring our productivity challenge, we will continue to limit 
and constrain those opportunities for many, many New Zealanders. And the result is that the only ones who do have opportunity, the only ones with the high-paying jobs, will be a, a decreasing proportion of the New Zealand population. And that's not a, that's not a New Zealand or that's not an Aotearoa that I'm interested in. So why is our productivity so poor? Well, I would say it's poor. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a struggle for a long time because a few of the characteristics of the New Zealand economy, we are a resource-based, natural resource-based economy, despite, in my flippant words, despite about 100 years of trying to diversify the New Zealand economy, we are still reliant on the fact that we... Um, grow grass and the rain falls every now and again in the right places to make the grass grow. We put the animals on the grass and we turn that into food. And then sometime over the last few years we've turned that into good scenery and the tourists come to look at it. But that's, you know, and I'm exaggerating and I don't want to, uh, I, I suppose, offend too many people. But that, if you've got an economy that's based on that, faced with um, barriers in terms of export markets trying to sell those products, it's always going to be a challenge. And, and latterly, um, I, I suppose the challenge now is even more confronting when we realise that those natural resources, the land, the water, that we've got to power our economy are being constrained, are being uh, exploited beyond their productive base, for example, or actually being depleted quite badly. And we've actually got to think carefully and seriously about how we continue to use those resources and or dare I say, reorient our business models towards something that is more sustainable, but also productive and able to deliver the well-being that so much of us desire. So is there a problem here with the measurement of both the inputs and the outputs? Say, for example, in farming, are we really measuring how much water is being used or how the soil might be degraded? And in artificial intelligence, you know, are we measuring the output that's from the person or the machine? Are we really measuring the right things? Well, there's an element to that. I'd agree with. I mean, some of the um, uh, if, if the market was was the, the prices in the market were signalling those externalities properly, those external impacts, then the measurement would be a lot more appropriate. Uh, and, and so that's why I use the phrase I want to take a, a broader perspective on productivity. So we take account of those uh, broader impacts. So we start measuring or at least acknowledging those. The, the the inputs and indeed the the outputs better and reflecting them in a way that means something for New Zealand. In my opinion, it's about delivering that well-being, those outcomes, those opportunities that we want. And I think the other element of that measurement that we've got to be careful about or think even more carefully about is actually the distribution of those outputs or those well-being. Because uh, in, in the economics that I learned how a few decades ago, it was all about growing the size of the cake. And my father would always say that you just continue to grow the size of the cake. You won't have to worry about how it's divided up because those arguments will just go into the ether because as long as the, the cake is big enough, we'll be fine. Well, now that argument doesn't hold. We actually do have to worry about how we divide up the cake because... As, as we well know in other parts of the world and indeed in, some, in, in New Zealand as well, that division of the cake is becoming more and more towards one group in the population and excluding others. And that's not sustainable in either an economic sense or a business sense. So we hear from the Piketty Brigade who see widening inequality as sort of an inevitable implosion of the system where you have more and more wealth concentrated with fewer and fewer people and the rest of the population is poorer and poorer 
both in relative terms and absolute terms. And you have issues with mental health, with obesity, housing, and then that means their productivity actually falls. What's your view on whether you see widening inequality actually is one of the reasons why productivity in New Zealand and the rest of the world is actually falling? Well, I think it's very key to many parts and other parts of the world. I would probably argue it's not here yet, but I think that's the that's the challenge that we've got to confront. If we pretend it's not going to be a problem here, then we will fall into that same trap. And so that's one of the reasons um, I'm quite keen on my position here is to start talking to uh, why productivity is important to so many in our community so that we all understand that actually productivity is here to deliver well-being to all, not just the privileged few. Um, and uh, indeed, let's look at the the state of the health of those inputs or those resources because that's what delivers us productivity and that's what delivers us well-being. So if our people are not looked after well, if they haven't got a, a, a warm, dry home to go back to after work, then it's no surprise that they're not productive on Monday morning when they turn up to work. If they're being employed at the minimum wage, it's not surprising that they're not actually that as productive as others. Similarly to our environment, if our, if our uh, lands are being encroached on for urban housing, our prime productive land has been encroached on by urban housing, or if the the nutrient levels of those lands have been depleted, it's not surprising they're no longer as productive as they used to be. All that means is we've got to get the balance between what we are producing, but also putting back into those resources. You know, economists call it investment, it's a bit of jargon, but we've actually got to spend on those resources, looking after them, resources, inputs. And one of those inputs is people. We've actually got to spend on looking after, for example, the mental health of our people. Because, as you say, if the mental health and well-being of our people is not good, it's no surprise they're going to be unproductive on Monday morning. Now, Treasury often talks about using the actuarial approach to making policy decisions. That's where they look at the long-term liability of any decision or the long-term assets that might be created. What's your view, though, on whether they're doing the right long-term measurements, particularly around some of these softer areas, if you like, mental health, for example, or obesity? Are they working out the long-term liabilities of these decisions? Well, I, I fully uh, well welcome the Treasury's long-term perspectives, and, I, and I'd encourage them to go even further. I worry about their their long-term sort of finishes after forty years, and in my mind, that's barely a generation. And if we're serious about intergenerational well-being, we've got to go at least more than two generations. Um, my worry about, I suppose, the actuarial approach is that it does assume that we can transfer everything, we can monetize everything. Uh, and that's a, that causes me concern because we are in a, we've, we've got to understand our economic mechanism relies on things like trusted institutions, for example. We rely on uh, our, um, I suppose the, the 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 court system to enforce contracts, for example. Now, it's very difficult to monetize those sorts of things. And then Treasury have this thing called social capital, which I'm sort of a fan on. And this idea that we actually do have a value when we are included in a community, as opposed to those who are excluded. How you monetize those things, I don't know. 
uh, I'll be honest, and that's that's part of the, I suppose, conversation and challenge that we've got to have. We've got to actually have those conversations rather than pretend that we can um, monetize everything. There are values that we hold dear as a people and as a nation. I would not uh, proclaim that we can mon- or we or we should monetize each and every one of those. And I know very. Uh, right when I was way back being a student of economics and somebody introduced me to the value of a statistical life. And uh, I know a shiver went down my back, but that's just my own upbringing. And I said, this, I just felt there was something wrong in there. And, you know, you live with it over the time because that's your economics training, but it still stayed with me. Those sorts of things that we try and put an artificial value on, when actually, to be honest, we've got to be honest, they have a value that's not monetized, but they are still part of that that policy trade-off that we've got to have, rather than pretend we can put everything in dollars and cents. Because there's a whole bunch of soft things which really aren't being included in these policy decisions. You know, you've got sugar taxes, there's a bunch of other areas that we don't seem to take into account. For example, the long-term costs for the health system of having a large chunk of your population dying many years earlier or living in pain or having issues with our obesogenic environment. How do you make sure those sorts of policy decisions, the analysis, is included when you think about productivity? Well, again, well, I won't say again, but it goes to the conversations we're prepared to have. Um, And it goes to actually embedding in a a bit more of a longer-term perspective within New Zealand. And and I think that's, I suppose, one of my other bugbears. And and I think one of the, um, I suppose, is not quite at the, the... the, the, the critical element in our productivity challenge, but I think it's a, it's a, it's an important element is our short-term focus, and uh, whether it's been business or community or politics or other elements of our community, just shift that short-term focus, that that desire for short-term wins, that desire for short-term benefits and costs, and shift that focus out. If we're serious, as I said before, about intergenerational well-being, let's start talking about intergeneration stuff. And I find it curious that we've got that short-term perspective, even though across all polls you all do, all New Zealanders say, yes, 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 we want to leave the place better for our grandchildren and so on. When's that going to be embedded in those those policy trade-offs? And I think that's the critical element. And you say it's not about productivity, but that, in my mind, is critical because productivity is a long-term perspective. And if we are serious about, for example, looking after those resources that I was talking about, investment in those resources, we won't invest in those resources until we realise the gains are not until the long term. We've actually got to be prepared to invest for the long haul in those resources, looking after our people, looking after our land and our water, all of those sorts of things. The infrastructure, let's build an infrastructure that's here, for, that's going to be relevant for 50 years' time as opposed to now. That sort of long-term perspective, if we successfully adopt that, that will make our productivity challenge a lot easier because then we will be building the resource and infrastructure base for the next generation rather than always trying to play catch-up. Now, the counterfactual to the idea that growing inequality reduces productivity is, well, you could redistribute the wealth and reduce inequality 
to improve productivity? Well, I mean, that, again, that's that's the the economics that I always learned a long time ago. You, you grow the pie, and then if the thing gets re, if thing doesn't get distributed properly, just the government will come in and redistribute. But uh, in today's world, we um, we as in the populace have a bit of an allergic response to the government coming in and redistributing in quotes, our income, because there's this idea that all of the income that we earned, we earned individually on our own as a result of our own individual efforts. Well, actually, let's broaden our perspectives a bit. And I said, I didn't get to hear on my own. I got to sit in this chair because of the supports I had 30, 40, 50 years ago through the community, the taxpayers, my family and everybody else who helped me get a degree and everything else and did all the training and all of that. So, so we've actually got to understand that our our individual efforts are actually supported by the communities around us and it's up to us to actually, in the jargon, pay it forward, pay it back. Uh, we, and, and that again is that conversation about the role of government. Thank you to Ganesh Nana, the new chair of the Productivity Commission. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Craig Rennie. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, then it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, the big news in the global economy this week has been Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary's announcement that she wants the world to have a minimum corporate tax rate. 
So I thought I'd ask someone who's looked at this stuff really closely, both within government here and overseas. Craig Rennie is a fascinating character, an import from Scotland, who worked very closely with Grant Robertson in the first term of government, including on all of the tax rates and actually finding a big hole in Nationals' budget before the last election. And I asked him, how big a deal is Janet Yellen's announcement? Well, in short, it's a big deal. It's really big, would be my argument. It's, it goes against 30 years of economic orthodoxy in terms of that countries should look to reduce their corporation taxes, look to reduce the barriers, and that one of the ways in which countries can grow is by reducing their corporation tax and essentially um, uh, stealing or poaching companies uh, to move to them. And we've seen lots of you know, examples of that around the world in, the, in Ireland and elsewhere, where countries have adopted this strategy sometimes very successfully. But the idea that that, that, that Ms. Yellen has suggested is that essentially that there should be a global corporation tax, which would close out the advantages that, that, com- that companies have um, over countries, is a really big deal. You know, and, and I say that for one very particular reason, in that it, it changes the value of taxation. In the past, it's always been argued that companies can spend money more effectively than countries can in the form of taxation. And essentially, Ms. Yellen's argument runs that countries can spend that taxation better than companies can, and that President Biden's approach um, of the infrastructure boost is essentially that inaction. Is this also the end of a big idea that all you need to do is unleash the market, the company, and do everything you can to um, give them what they need and everything will be right. But after 20 years of this bigger-than-neighbour competing for big corporates, how well has it actually worked? Well, the, the title of this podcast is When the Facts Change, which is an allusion to Keynes's famous dictum, When the Facts Change, So Do My Opinions. We have... 30, 40 years of empirical evidence that continuing to offer companies whatever they needed um, and to continue to pass costs away from companies and to other actors doesn't necessarily lead to economic success on any kind of measure that people care about. You know, the the evidence um, is that greater inequality comes as a consequence of this, of of changing, moving taxation away from companies and towards individuals, and that you end up with lower productivity, static productivity, and you end up with worse overall outcomes for the crown. So overall, the evidence suggests that you're right, this is hopefully the, 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 the beginning of the end of the idea that the role of governments is simply to make conditions right for companies to grow in. Now, New Zealand has a 28% corporate tax rate, which for many people seems low. You know, it's lower than our income tax rates. However, it's a bit higher now than many of the corporate tax rates around the world. So we're in a better position in a way in that uh, Janet Yellen is saying we should have a minimum corporate tax rate of 21%. Who are the potential losers in this? And I'm looking in particular at Ireland. <laughs> well, there are, there are some countries, you know, that have used competitive advantage in that space, but I wouldn't underplay our corporation tax rate that much because we don't have a capital gains tax in New Zealand. And so um, because capital gains aren't taxed, it has an effect 
of reducing the effective rate of taxes on income for companies. So we need to be slightly careful about comparing apples and oranges between New Zealand and other countries. But in terms of other countries, it would be countries like Ireland. It would be countries like Holland has, or the Netherlands has a, a, a low corporate taxation rate. Various US states have low corporation tax rates. Um, Kentucky famously reduced its corporation tax rates to zero from memory uh, in an experiment. It also has an impact upon uh, tax havens where corporation taxes are effectively zero because income is not counted in that way. Now, over the last 30 or 40 years, a lot of companies have argued, and a lot of people on high incomes have argued, that they shouldn't have to uh, pay to maintain the infrastructure of a society and that their success, their profits are due to their hard work and that they should be allowed to keep the benefits of that hard work. But when you look at the last 10 years or so, where governments have intervened quite aggressively in markets with quantitative easing programs, with you know rescues of banks and all sorts of things, it, it appears that the main beneficiaries in a K-shaped recovery post-COVID have actually been those on higher incomes and those, particularly companies, able to get the benefits of very low interest rates or other support from governments, um, is it time for New Zealand, other countries to essentially say to those beneficiaries of the COVID recovery that they should give back some of that benefit to the state, if you like, to taxpayers at large, to offset the benefits they got and redistribute to those who maybe actually haven't done so well out of the COVID recovery efforts? Yeah, and, you know, there's certainly an argument for saying that the government has made resources, unprecedented resources available at times during COVID in order to keep the economy running. We spent $14 billion on our wage subsidy scheme. We provided $6 billion in soft loans through the business finance guarantee scheme. The government provided $52 billion in the um, COVID response and recovery fund of which it spent the vast majority um, um, supporting industry, supporting businesses and keeping the economy afloat. And so there's certainly a case to argue that those who have benefited from those programs should pay a little more than they are currently paying and that um, you know they should be prepared to do, to do that in the future. The government would argue that, of course, it's increased the taxation rate but i think you know that ignores the the biggest gainers over the past couple of years who are those with assets who are those who have effectively have owned houses and who have seen again unprecedented increases in wealth and so one of the simplest things new zealand could do is to impose a capital gains tax which would one reduce some of the incentives that currently exist in New Zealand to own housing, but would be also help to right some of the fiscal imbalance where every dollar of the income of the income earned by a renter is taxed, but the uh, the value of a house owned by a landlord is not. That's the um, interesting thing about our tax system. We congratulate ourselves on how simple and apparently clean it is with the PAYE, GST, corporate tax rates we do have. Uh, but one thing it doesn't do is tax capital gains or wealth uh, generally. We don't have a, a death tax or an estate tax. We obviously don't have a capital gains tax. And it's interesting that we now have 
quite a few multinationals here who are quite aggressive in their use of uh, overseas jurisdictions and sometimes transfer pricing to actually reduce the amount of tax they pay uh, here for the activity that they do here. And sort of, so, so the government in 2018 launched a round of BEPS reforms, um, which is base erosion and profit shifting, which, have, which attacks multinational tax avoidance. But I think it's, it's fair to say that most economists agree there's still a lot more that could be done in that space. But the point that you make about uh, lack of capital gains tax, lack of a death duty or other forms of asset taxation or wealth taxation is that essentially we're encouraging wealth and asset inequality in New Zealand, which is already at stratospheric levels and for which there's plenty of evidence that it's, it's further encouraging the kinds of the, the K-shaped recovery that we're seeing in New Zealand from COVID. And so one of the, again, you know, we, we end up coming back to a system which we, we think we have um, what we call a low rate, low noise system, where broad based, everyone pays a little bit and the tax system operates in the background as, as neutrally as possible. But actually, it's driving exactly the sorts of undesirable behaviours that we're seeing in the economy right now. A few years ago, we got this big book from Thomas Piketty, which seemed to suggest that global capitalism, as it's become, is like a machine that's slowly wrecking itself because more and more of the um, assets and the income is being driven by the machine to the top. And then eventually the machine will become so unbalanced that it uh, topples over or, or much worse. And it seems that Janet Yellen's response and also, uh, Joe Biden's response is to try to reform capitalism by redistributing some of that wealth, in part to improve the well-being and the productivity of those who've missed out in the last 20 or 30 years. Do you think there is this element of you know, trying to you know, rebuild the machine from the inside out to ensure that it doesn't wreck itself? I think there's definitely an, an uh, and you know, and there's been a, a growing understanding by even mainstream economics that the kinds of laissez-faire approaches that we've taken to wealth distribution and income distribution are leading systematically to the, to, to poor outcomes for people, um, and that it, you know it's not desirable to continue on the path that we have. And, and Piketty's famous equation R is greater than G which is that the rate of return on interest is greater than the rate of return or growth in wages. And so therefore, wealth holders will become wealthier whilst income owners will not, is a seductive and, and possibly true interpretation of what's been going over the past 30 years. The thing that I would say is that Janet Yellen and others aren't actually trying to redistribute wealth, or at least or aren't trying to solve the existing problems inside the system. What I would suggest is that they're trying to do is to redistribute the growth in wealth a little bit more different. They're not trying to make the gap smaller. They're trying to make the growth in the gap slightly less quick. None of them are, neither the US administration um, nor um, you know, any of the central banks I've seen have seriously sought to actually reduce income inequality in an absolute sense. Yeah, um, I suppose small steps first. Uh, <laughs> it's it definitely small steps and none of them are attempting to, to say that there's the primacy of private enterprise being um, you know, what the economy is for. 
But there's definitely movements towards an enabling role for the state and increasing roles for the state. And, you know, Mariana Mazzucato's work about how the role the state can play in an enabling sense points to the increasing acceptance of that by countries. And the work that, you know, to some some extent, that this government has undertaken on things like R&D tax credits is, is a sign that, the state as an actor in the economy is is no longer dead and that it definitely has a, a role which is greater than just being a fair umpire. And when the facts changed, um, as the great Keynes said all those years ago and suddenly uh, became unfashionable, maybe the facts have changed back back in a circle towards his view of the world. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting that the, the push against Keynesianism in the in the late seventies and, and early eighties was 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 driven by this idea that economies had lost their animal spirits, that they had lost their their ability to to you know entrepreneurialism was dying because of a of a heavy hand of government, and having removed to a large extent the hand of government and reduced taxes and reduced burdens of regulation and reformed labour markets to make them far more flexible and easier to hire and fire, what we've uncovered is that. After 30 years of that experiment, there were some of the things that we actually liked 30 years ago, like job security, like, um, you know, a fair distribution of income, like rising living standards for the majority of the population, not just for some people. If we're going to see change in in the economies post-COVID, there's going to have to be a much greater role and, and recognition of the state as a central actor in doing that. Heresy. <laughs> Craig, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks this week to Ganesh Nana from the Productivity Commission. And of course, Craig Rennie with his heresy about the state involved in the economy. Thanks also to Kiwi Bank. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode every week. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.